The third doctor may have had several friends and companions, but there was only one Joe Grant. And neither Three nor Joe would have ever made it onto our television screens in the first place if it wasn't for the talents of Doctor Who's first director. Alyssa Frankie talks to actress Katie Manning and director Waris Hussein on the November 21st edition of This Week in Time Travel. Hi, thanks for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. I'm Chip, and we will be joined by my partner in time. Ah, see what I did there? And in just a few moments, we've got a couple of great interviews for you with Waris Hussein and Katie Manning that were done at Long Island Who. We had a great time at the convention, which you know about from our previous episode with Rachel Donner joining us. Thanks to the staff, especially Amanda Ray Prescott, the press liaison, we had the chance to talk to Warris and Katie, and let's just go right to the tape, shall we? We're here with Warris Hussein, the very first director of Doctor Who. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. So, in, in Adventure in Space and Time, which is how a lot of people were introduced to you recently, you and Verity Lambert were really portrayed as rebels of a sort. Did you feel like rebels back then when you were getting Doctor Who off the ground? I wish we could say we were rebels so much as very nervous young people. Uh, don't forget, Verity Lambert was the very first female producer at the BBC in a very male-orientated organization. I was the very first ethnic director in my age group. Uh, so we were two basic minorities. <laughs> so it wasn't a question of fighting as so much as um, trying to deal with uh, a situation where we were challenged. So what do you do when you're challenged? You either try to climb the mountain, hoping you won't slip all the way down, or you try to climb to the top. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. We were trying to survive. And it was against all odds to start with. We were supported very much by Sidney Newman, the, the producer, but the head of drama. And he was a Canadian. That's what also helped. He was not the dyed-in-the-wool British gentleman. Yes. He was a man who was adventurous, and he could be quite, uh, what? how do I put it, North American about these things. <laughs> uh, you, you, you break the bounds of propriety. So with his eccentricities and our uh, nervousness, we somehow, I always use this metaphor, we threw the dice and hoped, and it did turn up sixes. It but did. we didn't know at the time. Yes. We did not know what was going to be the future of this show, as you probably know. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you watch that show, which was following a lot of the things that actually happened, uh, it was touch and go all the way through. And then the ultimate spanner in our lives was the assassination of President Kennedy on the night that this was supposed to be broadcast. And we thought, well, this is it. They're, they're, the BBC are going to see this as a sign for saying, pull the curtain down, it's not working. But thank God, for one reason or another, they kept it going. They broadcast it subsequently, I think a week later. Mm -hmm. and, so, and the result was the audience reaction was amazing. But I have a feeling the reason for this was the world was in such a state of shock that this is an escapist story, although it was meant for children, but it also told you about 
people in jeopardy mm -hmm. and the uncertainty of what's going to happen to them. It was one of the first shows that dealt with how do we cope with something that we don't know how to deal with. Mm -hmm. And our protagonists were Barbara, you know, the, the two characters. They, they, they found themselves in the unknown world. And the unknown world is what we ended up with. Right. So you were a groundbreaking director when yes. you first directed for yes. Doctor Who. But unfortunately, the industry is still struggling today to hire women, people yes. of color, queer yes. people to direct. Absolutely. How have you seen the industry change and what do you think it needs to do to continue to evolve? I wish I had a, a simple answer for that. I think we've still got a long way to go. We have got now breakthrough films that have been made in the recently. Uh, there's much more attention being given to LGBT mm -hmm. uh, on television. There are more characters who are playing gay people. Uh, Moonlight won the Oscar. It, it, it was a breakthrough. And uh, there at least two films I've just recently seen which deal with gay subjects in a very good way, positive way. And hopefully we have a future as long as the industry allows itself to develop and doesn't get scared. The problem is it's to do with commercials uh, and uh, box office. Right. And if people don't want to see these things, that they stop making them. But I'm hoping, I'm very positive for the future. What do you think the industry can do to hire more diverse voices to keep directing these stories? I, I encourage it again and again, but you know, it's, you, you, you have to just keep talking about it mm -hmm. in the most positive way. If you can make your presence felt, and if I can be a part of that by saying, I started this off so many years ago, and I'm still around, mm -hmm. let's keep going. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you. We are here with Katie Manning, who played Joe Grant uh, during the third Doctor's tenure in Doctor Who. Katie, it is wonderful to see you. <laughs> it's wonderful to see myself most mornings at the age I'm at. <laughs> take me back. Oh, hello, I'm still here. You're still here, and we plan on keeping you around for quite a while. Oh, yes, I haven't finished yet. Good. <laughs> so I really loved Joe Grant. She was actually a bit of a role model for me as I was watching your stories, and I found that she had such incredible strength and it really you know gave me a lot of confidence at the time I didn't have it that's the wonderful thing about Doctor Who is that so many people have been affected in different ways you know people you know younger young girls who needed a role model and Joe was a good role model oddly enough um, yes but also you know just in general people who've been going through terribly difficult times in their lives Doctor Who has given them that that moment that separation from the, the pain or the suffering or the problems that they had it, it yeah. is an amazing program and that's why it's still with us exactly uh, and this is why you know and the fans are not like fans they like your chums I mean that's why everybody's huggable to me this is one absolutely vast family that goes to a hundred countries in the world you know but and it, 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 that's really exciting but Joe was I think a lot of people for a while because they'd had all these very strong women coming in and Joe was actually the a very strong woman but she didn't shout it right because she came in and you have to bear in mind she was like straight out of school virtually mm -hmm. she was like 19 she, all she could do was escapology and and lock breaking or picking mm. or whatever the thing is and so she came in and you actually watched her grow up so as yes. you were growing up she was growing up and you saw her go from this wonderful little very now creature 
um, into becoming a very strong woman. And then, of course, many years later, you saw that that strength in that woman, she became quite something after marrying her professor. She took over trying to save this planet. She's and very much an activist. She's involved. She does absolutely. not give up that fight for no. justice. And the other thing is she was, you know, the first girl to actually offer her own life for the doctors. And she yeah. had no special skills. She wasn't the smartest, but she was she was street smart. Yes. And she was trendy and she was naughty. Um, she had all those things that, you know, yeah. are fun in life. Um, and she, the great thing was to the relationship that John and I found off screen and on screen was so solid, so there, and that shows, and that shows with the whole team, yes. you know, that we were inseparable, and that's how you could play out the Green Death. Yes, which still makes me cry to this day watching it. No words is always got to be sadder. It's like when I did the, came back and I was confronted with Matt Smith's doctor, and she sort of has that moment on the planet, and it's that thing of almost crying, Yeah, which is, it, it, it has much more effect on it, then somebody just blubbing, where you just want to go, oh, for goodness sake, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean that nasty. No, yes. But you know when you see someone and you're talking and they're, I'm doing it now because I'm an actress, I can't help <laughs> it. <laughs> but, you know, it does. And the fact that, that in that studio, nobody could speak. Right. We were, it was the most emotional because we were a very tight family and I can say this now on a, on a female basis and I mm -hmm. say it because I think it needs to be said. We'd done a lot of work to be where we were as women in the 70s. Right. And I just have to say very quickly, it changed again later, sadly. But during my time at the BBC, I was never, ever, ever treated in any other way than an equal. Mm -hmm. I was never given that sort of, oh, she's... I was involved in absolutely that everything that went on. I was, you know, I worked at the BBC for many years and I never, ever went through anything that I found disturbing or distressful or lack of respect for me being a female. And I'm very proud to be able to say that. Yes. And the fact that I didn't even think about it back then, because it's only now that I think back and people say, oh, it was terrible. It was even... And I'm going, well, I didn't have that happen to me. But right. we, we are looking at women who worked very hard in the 60s, 70s. And I also had a father who back in the 50s was working for women's rights in the workplace and so on and so forth so you know for me this has always been my right yes. this is why I'm proud to call myself Miss Manning <laughs> I am not going to hide behind a sort of generic title right you know I'm a proud strong woman with children and I'm not married right and <laughs> damn it and that makes Thanks you still goodness. a full complete human you know, with a worthwhile life and I think Jo was very much that sort of yes. you know she was there fighting for everything that she could fight for, but never with the feeling that she was suffering anything. Yes. This is something that needs to be done for the world, the universe, and everything. You've currently playing Joe through Big Finish, as young she was in the 70s old. with, the, yes, young and old, in the 70s with the third doctor. Has your approach changed to that character as you've you know, had that more perspective on her. Obviously, I think when you leave, um, and as I've become older and so on and so forth, I now know who Joe really kind of was. Right. Um, I know that woman inside out. 
Yes, we're coming. You see, they make signals and they think they're doing it so subtly. I used to do a live television show about arts and crafts. They used to make signals at me, but I'm so short-sighted, I didn't know what the hell they were doing. Sometimes I closed the show and they were going, no, no, still keep going. it going. You know, and I'm halfway through saying, well, thank you for coming to Serendipity. Oh, but just before we go. Um, but, yeah, so I know, but I also know who she became. Right. And as an actress, that's an incredible art. Because to know where she got to, you have to know where she's been, if that makes any sense. Oh, it does. And, you know, working with Liz was, was wonderful for me because she, you know, her character, she sort of stayed, mm-hmm. you know. But Joe kind of did this massive, great growing up arc just in two and three years. Yes. And then, as I say, so I know Joe now so well. And... Um, and I have such respect for what I was given back then and for all the people that I worked with back then. And it's so lovely to see where she... And she's in exactly where she should be, isn't she? She is. And she's still married because she was a faithful little old stick. <laughs> and, she, and, and her and Osgood together are... It's delightful. Your I, interactions together... They are just so funny. They are. And I'm doing another one, which I'm probably not allowed to say. Oh, we can leave that off until it's official. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really excited but for I it. But I have to tell you, it's... Yeah, it's... Wonderful. Good. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very honoured and very proud, and I do hope that people enjoy the fact that we have got the old girl still banging around the world doing her thing. We absolutely <laughs> love it. Thank you so much for taking oh, the time to speak you, with darlings. us. Thank you. And I'm glad that I was actually sensible for a minute. You I were think I was. more than sensible. You was were I? perfect. You okay, were absolutely well, should perfect. Should we now go and practice a dance routine? That we, we can go practice a dance yeah, routine. Jonathan. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so darling. much. Press liaison Amanda Ray Prescott worked some scheduling magic because I was an idiot and replied to Alyssa and not to Amanda to let her know which interviews we wanted to do and when. So thanks again, Amanda, and thank you for fixing it so that my co-host would not kill me. When we come back, Alyssa and I will take on the news. This week on The Incomparable Network. Monty and Rias weren't super excited by the curse of Oak Island, so they focused most of their reality TV thoughts on the cast of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars on the latest episode of The Villain Edit. There's a smorgasbord of TV news about British comedy, the awfulness of broadcast networks, and the even more awful awfulness of Hollywood behavior on Tim Goodman's TV talk machine. And Erica and Steven try to make sense of the Prisoner episode, Dance of the Dead. They fail. On In the Village. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. Hey, where was that strange voice coming from? Hello, Chip. I am here in Los Angeles. What are you doing in Los Angeles? Is it convention time? Alas, we have a little bit longer to wait until Gallifrey won. I am home for Thanksgiving uh, and also to celebrate my great-grandmother's 100th birthday. So that's a real time traveler right there, folks. Yeah, slowly and in the correct order. Speaking of Gallifrey One, a little bit of news dropped in the last week about a special guest that's going to be there. Yes, Stephen Moffat is going to be making his first Gallifrey One appearance since before he took the helm of the show. So that is going to be 
incredible to have him there, uh, especially alongside uh, some of the crew that he has worked with. So we'll have director Rachel Talley there. Uh, We'll have two of the writers uh, from Series 10. So I'm really looking forward to hopefully getting a few panels, uh, not just Stephen on his own, uh, but also with some of the writers and directors that he has worked with to learn a little bit more about how the magic happens every season. Yeah. You know, I always kind of wished that uh, Russell T. Davis and uh, Julie Gardner would show up at some of these conventions. It just doesn't seem to be their thing. But this has been in Stephen Moffat's DNA since, you know, time immemorial. It was only a matter of time and only surprising that it's happening so quickly that he would come back to Los Angeles and Doctor Who fandom's premier convention. Yep, but guess we couldn't keep him away too long once the uh, actual work obligations were over. Yeah. So some other stuff happened in the last week. We got the Twice Upon a Time preview that we talked about that aired as part of Children in Need. What did you think of it, Alyssa? I loved it. I thought it was just a lovely introduction into how we will see the first and 12th Doctor interacting. And it was just, it was delightful. Uh, And you also have Mark Gatiss just sort of wandering very confused in the background in the most delightful way possible. Uh, And it really got me excited to see all of them interacting together uh, during the Christmas special. Chip, you seemed a little more skeptical. Not skeptical, just it was kind of exactly what I expected. And the banter between the first and the twelfth doctors also didn't seem to break a whole lot of new ground other than the sheer audacity of having the first doctor there. Whenever we have multiple doctors show up, they immediately criticize the other's TARDIS home decorating skills. They do not get along. You know, it's it's what you get from a Doctor Who multi-doctor story. So this didn't quell my enthusiasm by any means, but it didn't heighten it either. either. I just felt like I was getting exactly what I was expecting. Does that make me a bad person? Not really. I think I'm just very much in the mood for the comfort food of, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. Thank you. Please continue serving it in big dollops on Christmas Day. (laughs) Unfortunately, we also got some sad news this past week, though not entirely unsurprising. Composer Murray Gold, who has been creating the incredible music that has backed Doctor Who since it was brought back to life in 2005, is going to be leaving Doctor Who following the Christmas special. I am not ready for this. Oh, dear. Chip is saying goodbye to too many people on Christmas. Uh, No, I just... Okay. I get that Murray Gold is not everybody's cup of tea. I also get that there are loads and loads of talented composers out there who should be given a shot. And, you know, it's been a while since we've had soundtrack releases for seasons. Uh, I've gotten the feeling that some of this music has been sort of repurposed as opposed to creation of new music. You know, there's... It makes a lot of sense, but Murray Gold has been the soundtrack to my favorite television series since 2005, 
and he kept reinventing it. You know, it mm-hmm. it I had faith that if Chris Chibnall wanted to go with a completely different type of music that Murray Gold could deliver it. But it's going to be still a long time before these episodes are ready to be scored. It makes sense that Murray Gold would have other things to do, whether it was Chris Chibnall's idea or Murray Gold's idea for Murray to move on. You know, absolutely not surprising, but talk about comfort food. A Murray Gold soundtrack to Doctor Who is my jam. I'm still very upset that we do not have a Series 9 soundtrack yet because the music that he created for Heaven Sent is just utter perfection. And we need that in a soundtrack now, please. Yes, yes, we do. We do. So um, I don't want to see him go, but it makes perfect sense. And I do think that that does indicate as with all of the other things, Jodie Whittaker's casting, a large supporting cast, a presumed writer's room kind of situation, a possible more serialized structure for the entire season, add to that yet another change with a new composer coming on, it's going to feel like a totally different show, I think. Yeah, but that's how... Doctor Who changes and survives. It has done it before and it can do it again. Yep, yep, yep. But give Murray Gold a Lifetime Achievement Award, people. Absolutely. Murray Gold has a posse, people. Edward Russell, uh, Doctor Who brand manager, uh, shared on Twitter a fairly shocking revelation. Which has sent many a cosplayer a scurrying to fix their plans. Apparently, the lighting in the promo picture did some funky things to Jodie Whittaker's coat because it's more of a light blue slash lilac-y color than beige, which is really throwing me for a loop of how everything else is supposed to look in the right lighting. Right. (laughs) Did I even buy the right culottes to make my cosplay? (laughs) Am I going to be looking for different color suspenders in three months? Give me the photo on the white background, people. Uh, Well, I am definitely holding off on my cross-play purchases. I'm just saying that. Uh, Yeah. I need need more information there. Uh, A fan did sort of do a Photoshop job on the coat. And said, is this what it looks more like under normal lighting? And he said, yes. So I don't know if that also affects the uh, the other costume pieces. But after all of that incredible work in just the space of a couple of days for so many cosplayers to be wandering the halls of Long Island Who, looking like Jodie Whittaker, it's not the reveal costume with the hood and the coat and all that from the initial video announcement. It is not even the look of the costume as it will appear in the show. They had specialty off-lighting editions of the costume during the convention. Kind of remarkable. Collector's items. (laughs) Uh, We also got a sneak peek of some of what we will see during Twice Upon a Time in this month's Doctor Who magazine including photos and interviews with and about the quote-unquote new Ben and Polly, Jared Garfield and Lily Travers, which, of course, have an impossible task of trying to 
bring to life your favorite characters while also trying to make it new and their own. So the casting director was quoted as saying that he urged the actors not to try to literally mimic the previous actors, which is likely true of the instructions David Bradley was given as well, based off how we've seen him portray the first Doctor in the trailer and the first Twice Upon a Time clip. Chip, what did you think? Did that feel weird to you? Do you think it's going to feel weird to you when you watch how they portray Ben and Polly? Probably not, but there's a chance. I mean, um, I haven't seen a lot of Ben and Polly. I've got some gaps here, but there have been some amusing arguments in fandom over whether it's a good idea for them to bring back the first Doctor as played by a different actor. You know, uh, everybody sort of gives the Herndl situation a pass, but there are those who have seen enough of the DVDs. You know, the performances of all of these actors are timeless. They they exist forever and ever. And then to have a new actor sort of coming in, I think that there are going to be more than a few fans who are going to look at Ben and Polly and the First Doctor and say, but they're not quite right. I'm probably going to be much more in the forgiving um, stage because, you know, characters. Yeah, I think the one of the things that... I take into this when I approach it is I really want it to sort of recreate the feel that I had when I watched it for the first time, which is obviously going to be different from how fans who watched it in the 60s and 70s feel uh, because they're watching it at a very different time. But when people are trying to mimic, it comes across very forced oftentimes. And if they are inspired, but a little bit more natural themselves they get to put a little bit of their own touch on it it to me sometimes feels more like the real thing and especially because you know we have to make allowances for the fact that what we have now is a very different television environment and they are trying to recreate the feel of something even though we've gone so far beyond the television that we had when Doctor Who was just getting off the ground. You know, it's sort of the way they talked about how they reinvented the Mondasian Cybermen because they couldn't use the exact original costumes with modern camera equipment because it would feel entirely different than how it felt when you watched it originally, black and white, a little grainier, can't quite see the same amount of details on it. So they have an unenviable job, but I think that I'm going to still enjoy seeing how they bring those characters to life because it will just be enough of Ben and Polly that I think I will be satisfied and happy by it but I don't think I will hold it against them because they're not actually the original actors yeah I would rather have a quality actor doing a quality acting job inhabiting the character than to have an impressionist yes I think that's how I'd agree with it too Well, it is the American, the United States American Thanksgiving holiday. I know that there is a a whole nother couple of uh, countries in America that have their own Thanksgiving holidays, but this one is mine, and that means that we are going to take a break next week. When we come back in two weeks, it will be time to really, really come close to the end of our Christmas master plan. We will be reviewing The Time of the Doctor and Last Christmas with special guest Warren Fry. 
That will be in two weeks on This Week in Time Travel, which you can find if you haven't found us already. And if you haven't found us already, how are you listening to us right now? At thisweekintimetravel.com. We tweet at drwhothisweek. I tweet at numeral two-minute time lord. And Alyssa tweets and posts on Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. And we do have a Facebook page as well. Just look for This Week in Time Travel. This Week in Time Travel is hosted by Jason Snell's The Incomparable Network. You can support our show by becoming a member and ticking the box for This Week in Time Travel and any other incomparable shows you like at theincomparable.com slash members. And thanks! Thanks also go to Christopher Breen for our original theme music, to David J. Lore for our original podcast logo and avatar, and as always, to Swear Who and Swear Trek, the visual soundtrack of 2017. Thanks all for listening! Bye-bye.